welcome to the Holding History Podcast, a series of bookish conversations about the fascinating and sometimes puzzling ways we record, share, and preserve cultural knowledge. In each episode, a brilliant guest expert helps us tell new stories about old and sometimes odd media. While every conversation is different, we return to one particular question. What makes a collection special? My co-host is Joshua Calhoun, professor in the Department of English and the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies. Josh went through a Stephen Crane poetry phase in junior high because, apparently, the red badge of courage wasn't disturbing enough. (laughs) My co-host is Sarah Marty, co-director of the Boltz Center for Arts Administration at the University of Wisconsin School of Business. Sarah once complained to me, no lie, about George Lucas because he was getting in the way of an event she was coordinating for the Dalai Lama. Today we share a conversation with Wisconsin Poet Laureate Dasha Kelly Hamilton. Dasha is a poet, performance artist, and creative change agent. Author of two novels, three poetry collections, and four spoken word albums, Dasha is also a teacher, working with students in a variety of settings from K-12 through classrooms and on college campuses to professional conferences to, well, we're going to hear a lot more about the many ways that she inspires others in our interview. Her impact as a creative change agent has taken her beyond the stage and the classroom and includes serving as a member of the Arts Envoy for the U.S. Embassy, facilitating community-building initiatives in Botswana, Toronto, and Beirut. Whatever form her work takes, it uniquely engages communities in a forward dialogue on race, class, and equity. So I I love this conversation we had with Dasha, uh, but I have to admit up front that I was choosing to trust your instincts on this one, Sarah. <laughs> on the one hand, I, I was so excited to talk with Dasha about poetry because I know her by reputation and I, I love her work and I love poetry. On the other hand, I wasn't quite sure how a conversation about spoken word poetry was going to line up with this broader conversation we're having this season about archives and about what makes a collection special. Uh, you know, it like, wasn't immediately obvious to me how spoken word poetry, something that seems ephemeral by nature, fit into our show about archives which we kind of think of as material objects. I'm glad you were smart enough to know I was right. (laughs) Um, I first met Dasha when we collaborated on the 100th anniversary celebration of Wisconsin Public Radio. She produced one of the three feature segments and brought storytellers from the Stillwaters Collective to the Overture Center stage. I knew she could get us thinking in more expansive ways about collecting and curation and about how some aspects of shared community experiences can be preserved for those who weren't present in the moment. And I know, because you sent me a bunch of links, that you went down a YouTube rabbit hole as you researched spoken word archives before our interview. I did. And and watching recordings of spoken word poetry uh, really got me thinking about how an ephemeral art form is preserved and who owns it and how it's archived and how it will be accessed in the future. What I love about our conversation with Dasha is that we spent maybe the first half learning from Dasha about the process of making live art. And then we shifted in the second half to this generative conversation about how to preserve and share the spoken word in a reliable, equitable, accessible format. We revisited many of the themes we've touched on in previous episodes, specifically the role that archivists play in curating not only items and text, but also experiences. Dasha brought us into the world of experiential design and even got us thinking about how pedagogy relates to collecting. We're so grateful to Dasha who took the time to join us even while she was in transit in Anchorage, Alaska. So let's get to our conversation with Dasha Kelly Hamilton. Yeah, we're not leading in with a softball. I, I just want to know, have you always thought of yourself as a poet? I have not. Um, I've always thought of myself as a writer, 
Uh, distinction being my first love was fiction. So I wrote short stories and I love to read. And I've always loved to scribble these little narratives. And, I've, and I, didn't, I didn't really discover poetry until my 20s. Now I've actually heard of poetry. Obviously everyone takes that unit in school. And it was, it was something that many, like many of my classmates I suffered through <laughs> because poetry was introduced as puzzles to me. Yeah. The correct answer was man's mortality. <laughs> what does this mean? Man's mortality? What's the deeper significance? Man's mortality? Oh, not this time? Oh. <laughs> oh, that being the introduction, I really couldn't appreciate what was happening on the page. It took me a long time to reconcile. And then fast forward, I'm writing my own poems. <laughs> and to find out that this language that I speak, the way that I approach my stories, um, were poems all along. Were, were lyrics and poetics all the while. And then finding that craft, you know, piecing those words together in a particular way, not to make it, not to make it where people have to work for the understanding, but there is an invitation to find understanding and what a poem can do. I love that. And in and, and, and looking through some of your, uh, your, your bios, you use the term creative change agent. And yeah. we love this term. Uh, we, we all want to, we all want to join you as creative change agents. Please. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering if you say more about that phrase, uh, what it means to you, what comes with it, and how it relates to your work as a poet. For certain. Um, getting into the work where I'm going into the classrooms and teaching poetry workshops, where I'm training other young people on how to mm -hmm. hold space and lead sessions with other young poets. From the very beginning of being invited to go in the class, it was absolutely a thousand percent, $50, sure I'm available. You know, and mm -hmm. so you go in, I don't, I'm not particularly a teacher. I've worked with young people, so I had that experience, but it's different from holding down a whole classroom. And going into the classes, I had gone in, I had done work in classrooms where I was doing more, it's active motivational speaking. I'm going into these rooms as a poet, which I remember being in school, that's just another teacher coming in, making me take out paper to do something, right? <laughs> so how to make that experience even more engaging. And so I began to start doing research on what it was about my presence in the classroom. I have a lot of personality, I get that. And I'm good with students, I get that. But there was something in this poetry work also that wasn't about the poem. And I'm humble enough to know, I don't know, I didn't, I didn't know fiction was my thing. I didn't want to present myself as a poetry expert because I wasn't. And in just doing the study of language and creative play and creative writing and youth mm -hmm. development, all those different pieces landed on the understanding that it was about self-efficacy. So that means I'm going in and the, the steps that it takes to get from, I don't know, to a poem, a lot of answers, a lot of exploring, a lot of options. And so I really focused on that process of creating together. I focused on the experience of making up things, responding to language, doing little language puzzles. And at the end of it, everyone still had a poem. So from the very beginning, it was all about creating this experience that ultimately produced poems. But it wasn't about going into a classroom to produce poets. Starting my work with that approach, every workshop that I've made had that as a tenor. So, and I've had one workshop in particular that I've done with kindergartners, I've done with CEOs, I've done with inmates, I've done with ballet dancers, 
And because the experience is the focus, I'm able to tweak it and instruction here or there to make it a little bit more relevant. And at every session, there's always poems that happen. Creative change agent is where I landed. I read, um, I, I know I saw change agent as a reference to a civil rights icon or you know people that were that were traditionally doing organizing, community building work. And I'm doing that too, but as a creative and through mm -hmm. creativity and by giving people the space of exploring that side of themselves. Thank you, Dasha. Um, building on, on what you just shared, uh, I'm thinking about um, Stillwaters. And I love, mm -hmm. I love that sentence about uh, Stillwaters being a place where you gather your best ideas and selves around pages and stages, invigorating us all in the habit of listening and being heard. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering mm -hmm. if you could just share a little bit more about that role of being a curator for Stillwaters. Most definitely. Um, going to the class time that we spent. So I was going to uh, elementary schools and I was invited to come to a high school. Then it was the whole high school. Then it was another school. And at the height, we had up to 16 high schools that were participating in this intramural poetry slam league. Wow. So of course I can't be at all of those schools. Don't give me, trust me, I tried really hard. <laughs> and the initial part of Still Waters was, you know, I know other, at that point, adult poets. I know other folks who could do this work if they, were invited or if they had the preparation. And Stillwater's initially was, uh, in my mind, it was going to be a good housekeeping seal of sorts. Mm -hmm. So creating that experience of, of a process mm -hmm. of creative community, like you said, and an expectation of listening, <laughs> so just the basis of being in an open mic, and particularly yeah. when you're talking about competition. Mm -hmm. If nothing else, you're listening for strategy. But if everything else, you are falling in love with these words. So watching students who would have never interacted with each other in any other capacity, not only just know one another's name, they know each other's poems, they know who's going to school where, they know who broke up with who, they, and they're still connected today um, because we gave them this, this invitation to offer their opinions about the world around them instead of saying, wait, 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 you need to get a degree in a 401k first before we value your opinion. So all of that is a focus, mm -hmm. um, just really builds a foundation for how I approach community art, how I approach my role. Mm -hmm. So it really is making a space. And I'll even go back before the, you know, Stillwaters started as an open mic for adults. Started at a bar. Um, my um, ex and I owned a bar called Mecca and we, and poetry was one of the first things we put on our calendar. So Thursday nights was Stillwaters poetry. Started with four people around a cocktail table and it grew to be the largest and longest running open mic series in the city. We brought in national artists every month and we started then to export our talent as it were out to different venues and international competitions and all that stuff. And so it really was making this space comfortable for the folks who wanted to come be rock stars, for the people who were nervous about that poem they wrote at work. Um, let's create a series just for them called the Homegrown Poetry Show. We're going to do a whole series that celebrates you and your two poems, <laughs> right? So then we came up with a thing for what about the audience, those people that come every week and they never read, they never want to read, <laughs> but they're here. Again, making the space, creating experiences. And it was never, and it wasn't, a, it wasn't a thing I set out to yeah. do, um, but something in response to how to, how to evolve what was already happening. I love that idea. Um, 
uh, I was just thinking about the concept of making space for community participation in a curated shared experience. Um, yeah. as a, as a theater producer, like I, I understand, come at that from a different, a different angle, but I completely understand that idea of creating the opportunity by gathering people together. And one of the things that I'm interested in is when you're producing an event, when you're curating an evening of, you know, spoken word or storytelling or shared experience, how do you decide what to include, what not to include, what order, like all Mm. those big questions of like all the pieces, where am I going to have this event? Like, how do you make those decisions as a producer? Sure. That's a really great question. Um, And similar to me finding out later in life that I've been a poet the whole time. (laughs) (laughs) Now we have the language of experiential design, Mm -hmm. right? So I was able to work with a, 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 on a conference with a conference producer and experiential design was their thing. And I was like, Oh, so this way that Mm -hmm. I think has a whole different, has a whole category, a whole field to it. And it is designing an event for the experience. And you first want to start with, what is the, not just the experience you want people to feel, but what is it you want to have happen? So I'm going to uh, use a couple of years ago, the Milwaukee Art Museum had the San Quentin exhibit. And it was a showcase of photography and narratives um, from Nigel Poor and her work at the San mm. Quentin prison. And the art museum had me come on board to help create um, audience engagement events around uh, around this exhibit. So traditionally, as you know, as a producer of events, the audience engagement um, shallowly is how to get butts and chairs. But all along, my approach to events has definitely been what is it that we want people not just to experience and how they, how they should feel, but what is the why in the first place? And to just traditionally, engagement events are really marketing, right? So how do we engage particular audiences to get them in the seats to come and see this exhibit yes but the opportunity is how do we use this exhibit this event as a way to broker much needed conversations around incarceration around ab- abolition around reentry, mm-hmm. um and about this exhibit that will happen easily so thinking about that experiential design my favorite one that we did was an event uh, that had that was exploring the conversation of young people who had parents and family members who have been incarcerated. It's not a discussion that have that we have often. And how do we have it in a way, A, that presents current valid information? How do we present it in a way that doesn't, um, that doesn't take, that doesn't demoralize or, or commercialize a human being, the young child's experience. Um, and how do we also have in a way that's not so sugar-coated and watered down that the people who aren't, who are not impacted, so that they're not uncomfortable. We mm-hmm. do all those balances, right? Those types of, those types of moments where you're thinking, what do we want people to walk away from? And the, the go-tos, the formats that we go, that we typically use for events, you know, whether it be a talent show or a panel discussion or an open mic, what have you, is that going to do it or what needs to be tweaked? Does this need to be up on a stage or does mm-hmm. this need to be four levels so, every, so these young children won't feel that they're being lorded over? Should this be something mm-hmm. that um, happens in fate, in, in segments, 20 minutes at a time, or should this be one big long show? So 
more than just mm-hmm. how the event should feel. But what is it you want people to do? Do I want folks to talk or not? Do I want people leaving yeah. with heavy, yeah. heavy questions in their heart yeah. or, or not? So those are the pieces and you design from there. And since institutions are leading a lot of the human experiences, <laughs> we, can, we can often miss that opportunity to not know together. That I think is one of the more exciting pieces of putting together, of curating an event or conversation is how much structure can still produce unexpected dialogue and uh, um, discoveries. I love, I mean, all this attention thinking with design towards this event, towards this moment where things come together, right? It's, it's um, and sometimes it, it can be this, the beauty of it is that ephemeral nature of it, it happens and, and it's just, it can only happen in that space, right? I wanna ask a question thinking forward about the future and the legacy of the work that you do. Are you thinking past the event? Are you mm-hmm. thinking to the afterlife or the future life of this in, in, in some form? And I, And so I wonder, you know, what do what do archives uh, for community-based collaborative projects look like? What do archives for spoken word poetry look like? How and where are these stories preserved? Oh my goodness! Definitely in the, the video archives. What I'm thinking about right now are the competitions. So Brave New Voices, for example, is an international spoken word competition for teenagers, and mm-hmm. so the work that they do. Obviously, what happens on stage, like you said, you have yeah. to be there. Yeah. You have to be in the room when this moment happens and you can feel this electric um, current go to the audience or you can hear everyone gasp at the same time. You, you can just feel this one after the other, you know, people sniffling, whatever the moment is, you feel that in a physical space. But to also in terms of archiving, to be able to go back and look at the videos that, that they've captured of these specific performances but really getting folks to focus in on how to tell their story as it happened. And um, now in terms of craft, when I think about legacy and I think about spoken word moving forward, one that every year the the list of topics blows open even further. So we're reminded about things that have been, Mm -hmm. have been defined for us as taboo compared to things personally that you really want to talk about, like sex, like religion, like uh, money, like race. Yeah. Uh, those are things that we have to figure out how to express. And on an individual basis, once you figure out how to take that, <laughs> how to approach that emotion, that memory that has just always been there, right? How do you break that down? How do you break down that seven years of your life into a three minute poem? How do you find the most important elements of that relationship with your dad and put that into a three minute poem? How do you really decide the most and least important parts of that story of when you traveled to Europe by yourself? I'm gonna teach my classes, I say, when you wanna explain all the details of what happened, go to prose. You're gonna use your fiction. You're gonna write an essay. You're gonna write a super long Facebook post. You're gonna use all of your sentences and periods and conjugate your verbs. <laughs> That's gonna get that out. But when you wanna get right to why it matters and the so whatness, you go to a poem. Um, and not that you can't do either with both, of course, but a poem mm-hmm. gives you a chance to get to the, I call it that mortar between the, between the bricks. It helps you get to the so whatness of everything. And you get to break language rules to make it happen. So I think, um, mm-hmm. changing maybe why people sit down and write a poem in the first place 
Um, and then giving that space of it doesn't just have to be where you stand up and you read it from the page. You can mess around and get three people to do a poem with you and choreograph it. And now you have a slam. <laughs> so I feel what spoken words gives us a chance to do is how to approach a story and how to share it in ways that are really authentic to all emotion um, that's happening. You know, part of what you're talking about too is you, you mentioned your videos is this, is this way of people access them. And I mean, to be even really specific, right? It's YouTube, right? I mean, YouTube is is where we go. This is the archive. It's a, but it's a troubled public archive. But you're right. The the what happened, that long story. You know, people don't want to watch five, much less twelve minute videos. But I had the pleasure of of uh, seeing you perform uh, Deaf Poetry Slam on six million ways to die the the company you kept there right so the season episode that you were on i think was like like uh folks like dmx and big mike were on the same episode as you right but but that's you know and i heard those but then i was jumping all around like well lauren hill well what does nikki giovanni say erica badu jamie fox uh you know and it was just and suddenly an hour and a half later you know i'm i'm still on youtube and i've watched i don't know how many three minute videos but they're only three minutes and so i just keep watching and it was cool in a lot of ways but here's maybe the question too is like that stuff exists outside you like that's that's taken that's your poetry that's out there i don't think you're getting a kickback for it what's the legitimacy of youtube as a public archive is that if, if that's the archive mm. if that's what it's going to be is that a legitimate archive for for spoken word poetry wow that's a great question um the answer should be no shut it down pay me every time you watch six million ways but in real life that's how you know me. That's how some of these works get out. So I've had someone, some, this has been some years since the statement has been made, but I still feel it's true, where poetry, spoken word in particular, is on the same trajectory as jazz. So jazz music wasn't popular when it first came out. It was an underground cult of folks who knew about the art form, who valued it, um, who captured it on wax and traded it that way. So having this um, and, and what deaf poetry did is it, it exported this experience that had been underground to obviously a broader audience um and so yes yeah, so the archive and there'll be conversations that will happen um about how to you know which poems get released and maybe more of a, of a decision that the artist makes for example if i've got 10 classic poems mainly maybe i only have three that live on the internet and the other ones you have to go to my site or download or i don't know we'll get to that point but a lot of it we are still thinking about that jazz moment we are still bringing more people into the fold we are still um, an art form that people surprisingly are discovering and i think more than anything discovering that they that it speaks to them too um Whereas if you, like for me, I was surprised to learn that the way that I write counted as a poem because we'd been taught that poems need to look and sound X this way. And so if you're, if you take away the poetry part and you just fall into spoken word, those are stories, those are narratives and videos give people a chance to kind of fall into those pieces a bit. So I think to your point, yeah, that will evolve and we'll get a little bit more savvy about how to protect our work. But by and large, having that video footage, having those clips out there, it helps the greater cause. Um, it invites people into the general art form. And then for those of us who love it, we just can't get enough of it. And hopefully you're still, 
you're still creating more. So that poem, that poem that's out there, you've got something. If you like that, where do you hear this new piece that I have? So hopefully that's happening too. That really speaks to how you figured out a way to work with new technology, even if it has its issues or problems. Um, as we wrap up, do you have any final thoughts about the role of poetry in the lives of future generations? Thing, but in terms of the idea of thinking forward and the art form and what this also has seeded, um, are people again, young and not so young, having this, this physical experience of finding a way to get that thing out, of saying the thing that's complicated, of of making beautiful uh, a, a horrid memory of being listened to when they didn't really think that they made sense. And whether it's a poem or not, that sticks with them. And the process again, that it takes to go from, what is this, again, this seven year cloud over my life, you have to, it's a process of thinking and reflection and generosity with, with oneself that gets you to even create a poem out of that. And those are skills and mindsets that stay with you at the job, in a relationship, um, when you're reading the news, before you even pick up a pen. Thank you to our guest, Dasha Kelly Hamilton. Something we didn't get to in the interview but wanted to make sure and plug is Dasha's Wisconsin Poet Laureate project, Alignment. Alignment, which is three separate words, is a collective poetry project that uses an online app to share poems between traditional Wisconsin residents and residents of Wisconsin prisons. Participants submit a response to one-line poetry prompts, and they receive a unique poem in return. Eventually, submissions will be collected and added to by Dasha and then published as a collection. It strikes me as a perfect distillation of Dasha's creative and social commitments. Yeah, and it points us back to her focus on social justice, on sharing experiences, poetic experiences, and the challenge of preserving that work. Alignment is meant for Wisconsin residents, but anyone can check out the project at alignment.org. And we'll link that in our episode guide at holdinghistory.org. Holding History is a mentoring-driven public humanities program, and part of the work we do involves featuring student curators who are learning how to use new media to talk about old things. Each episode ends with The Bookish Word, where our HH student curators tell the story of a weird word from the history of books and media. Leonard Bernstein fans should crank up your headphones. This week's word is Panglossian. Oh man, I love that song. I love to start my day with a Panglossian feeling, and that song is perfect. Wait, what feeling did you say you wanted to start your day with? Panglossian. Is that even a word or just one of those words you make up to show you're the smartest one around here? <laughs> it's a word, Theo. Just admit that I'm smarter than you, and I know more bookish words than you do. There you go again. Showing off. Anyway, tell me about this strange word Panglo. Panglossian. That's the pronunciation of the word, and then it's spelled P-A-N-G-L-O-S-S-I-A-N. It just means being overly and persistently optimistic, perhaps naive, regardless of circumstances or facts. Interesting. I never heard that before. I guess it's probably one of those uh, more newly added words to the dictionary. Actually, it's a pretty old word. Fun fact, it originated from the name of a character in Voltaire's famous novel, Candide, uh, which was published in the 1700s. The main character, Candide, has a mentor named Dr. Pangloss, whose worldview is that all is well in this best of all possible worlds, ignoring chaos and destruction around him. 
His consistent optimism in the book is naive and it's meant to be satirical. And so Pangloss entered the English language as both a noun and an adjective, but it's relatively obscure. This is really interesting. Let me try it in a sentence. Children are generally Panglossian about every promise their parents make to them, especially during Christmas. Am I correct, Bridget? (laughs) Absolutely. I think on that positive note, we should wrap up. I trust everyone's learned something new from this episode. Till next time when we come your way again. Stay safe and Panglossian. That's the end of this chapter. I'm Sarah Marty. And I'm Joshua Calhoun. Our theme music is by Luke Levitt, and our associate producer is Tom Van Camp, who rode his bike in a rainstorm to record this session. The Bookish Word was conceived, created, and recorded by Bridget Anderson and Theophilus Okunlola. Support for this podcast was provided by a University of Wisconsin-Madison Baldwin Seed Grant and Friends of UW-Madison Libraries. Learn more about Holding History at holdinghistory.org.